0: Hey, podcast listeners, just jumping in to tell you about a free live event that you will not want to miss. January 11th through 15th, 2021, Learn, Play, Thrive is hosting the second annual Neurodiversity in the New Year Summit. It's always a huge party, and the theme this year is self-actualization and self-advocacy. When you register for the summit, you'll get to hear five days full of live talks from autistic OTs, psychologists, self-advocates, and even an autistic comedian. This is a new Year's celebration you will definitely want to be a part of. Get the details and RSVP yes at learnplaythrive.com summit. Welcome to the Two Sides of the Spectrum podcast, a place where we explore research, amplify autistic voices, and change the way we think about autism in life and in occupational therapy practice. I'm Meg Proctor from LearnPlayThrive.com. Before we get started, a quick note on language. On this podcast, you'll hear me and many of my guests use identity affirming language. That means we say autistic person rather than person with autism. What we're hearing from the majority of autistic adults is that autism is a part of their identity that they don't need to be separated from. Autism is not a disease. It's a different way of thinking and learning. Join me in embracing the word autistic to help reduce the stigma. Welcome to episode 15 with Sarah Silvaji Hernandez from The Autistic OT. I'm so thrilled to have Sarah back on the show. If you caught episode one, Sarah was the guest then as well when we talked about listening to autistic voices and respecting the autonomy of our clients. Sarah is autistic, she's an occupational therapist, And she's back on the show today to talk about how we can help cultivate a positive sense of autistic self-identity for our clients. There's even a really special moment where she speaks directly to parents. This is a clip you might want to have in your back pocket to share with your families when they're having a hard time so they can be inspired by Sarah just like we are. Okay, this is the last episode of the year. We're wrapping it up with Sarah, just like we started it with Sarah, and we will be back with new episodes for you in January. So here's the interview. Hi, Sarah. Welcome back. Thank you, mate. Hello to you too. So I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today to talk about what we can do to cultivate positive autistic self-identity in our clients. Mm -hmm. And I have to admit, Sarah, this was a concept I had absolutely never thought of before. Mm -hmm. But as soon as I first heard you say the phrase, I immediately knew that this was really important. So let's dive in. What does positive autistic self-identity mean and why does it matter?
1: So positive autistic identity really means... Just authenticity. And I know that seems like a very uh, over, overly vague answer, but it's meant to be. Because what I've actually found when doing the research on identity development and looking into how do you develop a positive sense of self, the thing that I kept saying over and over and over again were this, this idea of we become the, our reflections. From other people. And that's what the okay, So Sarah's
0: answer here was way deeper than I expected. And it took some time for me to digest. Basically, what she said was that everyone develops their self-image, at least in part, based on how others think of them. I looked into this a little bit, and the research says Sarah's right. Not only do others' perceptions of us have a huge influence on our development of self-identity, or as the research calls it, self-concept, but our self-concept also plays a huge role in our development. It relates to our ability to learn, our sense of competence, our motivation, how we regulate our feelings and behaviors, the level of harmony or disruption in our relationships, our confidence, and so much more. Disability definitely relates to poor self-concept, with autism being one of the most impactful characteristics. Race and gender probably impact this as well, but it's a little complex to discern how exactly since research shows a lot of mixed results here. So, Sarah says, we don't actually know what a fully autistic person looks like. We've never seen an autistic person develop outside of the pressures of neurotypicality and outside of the negative concept that others have of them. So her answer to my question, what is positive autistic self-identity was, we don't know yet, but we need to do a lot of reflection on how we see autistic people as the first step of figuring this out. So even though this is all still really uncertain, I know Sarah has a lot of good strategies for what we can do to promote positive autistic self-identity and do a little bit of harm reduction in how much we might be causing trauma in the lives of our clients. So I asked Sarah, what can we do to promote positive autistic self-identity for our clients? Sure.
1: Um, So with the acknowledgement, you know, these past couple of minutes that we don't know, (laughs) um, the next step is, okay, so we could uh, approach this problem of not knowing uh, two ways. We can be intellectually defensive and say, oh no, we do know and move forward with the literature that we have. Or we can be intellectually curious and say, all right, if everything I know potentially be flawed. I have, like you said, a duty, a responsibility to always be seeking, um, truth and to, and sometimes seeking truth means coming to a person and saying I'm wrong, or you know what? I haven't been listening to you. Let's go over this again. And so what can therapists do or what can parents do to help develop this one? I mean, we know nothing Two. Admit that maybe some of the ways that we were interacting before were damaging. And then the next step is then, how do we promote actual positive autistic identity? This answer is fluctuating for me. Um, And I know we've talked about it before, but I love... Occupational science. Everything that I do um, pretty much now is rooted in occupational science and also um, the participatory justice framework. Um, because the, what I have realized is this is a human rights issue. And so, how do we create a space for people to develop that identity using the principles of doing, belie- being, belonging, becoming? which are central tenets of occupational science. The first thing that came to my head with doing, the act of doing, is simming. It does not matter what age you are. It does not matter where you are. You should have a right to move your body in a way that is safe, in a way that is yours, Period. And we can talk, you know, about a lot of things with stimming, but I just have to start at that fundamental principle of it is our, it is my body and I can move it. So the first thing when we go into like therapies, please stop restricting stimming unless it's a danger to self or others. Please stop putting timing on stimming because I don't, sometimes it takes me 20 seconds. Sometimes it takes me an hour. Your five minute token means nothing to me. That means that you're still trying to control me. And the point of doing and being and becoming and belonging as an autistic person is like at minimum being able to just simply exist and do the things that our body wants to do. Stimming, um, you know, mo- most people who work with autistic people know what it is and see what it is, but I don't think that they really understand what it does for us, and I I have to imagine that, and so if I can make an analogy, it's like I'm in the classroom, um, you know, I love teaching. I'm an educator, so I'm up in front of the class. I feel the lights coming down on me. I feel disoriented because teachers typically have to stand in class and because of my sensory differences, I don't feel stable. I'm walking around. Those things, the walking around, sometimes I flap. I often use my hands when I teach. That's stimming. That is what stimming looks like as an adult. So you take a child who is flapping their hands while they're listening to a story and you teach them to repress that What are you potentially doing? You're stopping a child from developing strategies that will help them to be successful as an adult. So when we think about simming, you have to understand that it's literally an extension of my thoughts. I can't finish my thought without moving my hands. I can't. And what I have to say is important. So I want you... The therapist, you, the parent, you, the, um, maybe you are, you work at a church and you have, you know, autistic people, um, in your service, look at and say, wow, this is an extension of their being. Stimming is part of themselves. And in order for them to fully engage in their environment, this is something that they have to do. And the question then becomes, do I value their presence or do I value my control? Do I value what they have to say? Because stimming can be, it's functional communication about what's like how we're taking in information. Or do I value telling them to be quiet? Because I can't, so if I can't think when I move my hands, when you tell me to have quiet hands, you're telling me that the way that I think and, I, and the way that I'm being it doesn't matter.
0: I, I really appreciate that. I have a lot of people ask me, what should we do about stemming? And so I think this message hasn't reached nearly enough people yet. Right. Um, I had one podcast guest say, we should say, so what before we do any intervention? And I loved that. So what, yeah. right. That's, what's right. the problem here. There's no problem here. And and there might be a problem coming from the other people around them mm-hmm. because we know that non-autistic people aren't good at taking the perspective of autistic people. So maybe right. we can do some work. Maybe the peers in the kindergarten class can do some work right. and up their perspective taking skills if they're the ones that are having trouble with a child expressing themselves using their body.
1: I, I, I love that. And I love like, you know, taking so what and being like, what about if we just said, we flip the script and we say, that's so cool. Yeah, you're really enjoying this. And the, the thing is, people know when a STEM is self-injurious and a STEM is a STEM. I don't even really want to call it self-injurious STEM stems because to me, that's a trauma. That's like a like a severe, like I am in danger and I need your help if that's what's happening. So first, I don't like how our, any kind of stim that involves our bodies all of a sudden becomes self-interest or harmful. And I'll give you a very specific example. Many people know that I'm a therapeutic foster parent and I've had many usually nonverbal autistic kids in my home. And unfortunately, because of the system that I work in, I have had ABA in my home and I don't agree with ABA. I think it's abusive. And that's a really uncomfortable reality though, when you work in some of these systems and something's court ordered, I have no, you know, I I have to, or I lose my foster children. And so I remember I had a little buddy who would have his palm cupped open, like, so like, as if you were, um, you know, holding your hand under a faucet and you were catching the water in your palms. So he would have his palm open like that and he would hit his head hard enough to make a noise, but it was super playful. And the thing that I realized, the more I could tell so much from when my buddy would, he would hit the side of his cheek. And if his palm was cupped, it would create this sound and it was joyful. And I could, I don't know, it was just such a beautiful way to communicate with him. Now, the other way that he would sometimes hit himself is that he would put his hand flat and it would make a sharper sound. He would hit himself in the same area, but it would make a different sound, and that was communication to me that there was something wrong. He had to go to the bathroom, he was getting hungry, there was something, if he had his iPad, something wasn't going right, that was a cue. Well, I had an ABA therapist, um, BCBA come in and do the intervention, and she saw these behaviors as she turned them, and that was the first thing that she wanted to term extinguish. And I was like, why? She goes, they're self-interest. I'm like, no, they're not. He's not injuring himself. And she's like, but he's hitting himself. And I'm like, he's making noise. And so we had this big dialogue. And I thought that, honestly, I thought that we had gotten to the point where, you know, she at least heard me because it was really important to me that if you're going to be in my home, we're not working on the things that I don't want you to work on. And the thing that actually broke my heart was that, We had that conversation and then obviously they wrote their report and they wrote what they needed to write to receive, I believe it was 24, 25 hours of services in our home. And she put on there that he was self-injurious. And that made me angry because I am a mental health OT and I know what happens to little nine-year-old boys who have written on their reports that they're self-injurious when they're not. Um, and so this way of controlling stimming is not only harmful to ourselves immediately, but it's being intentionally misinterpreted for what more and more billable hours, more control, more
0: control. Yeah. That's so misguided too, because if he was using that for communication, it seems like you would meet his needs, not take away Mm -hmm. his way of communicating. Mm -hmm. So he's saying something's wrong. You figure out what's wrong and you help him. Mm -hmm. And certainly there could be opportunities to offer him additional ways to communicate as well. Mm -hmm. But just taking something away doesn't help anyone. And I want to say explicitly for people who are scratching their heads, when you said That, you know, it happens to to kids with self-injurious, especially young boys, Mm -hmm. behavior written in their reports. What that called up for me was seeing the um, padded rooms in Mm -hmm. public schools that technically weren't isolation because part of one wall wasn't closed, Mm -hmm. but that usually seemed to escalate the stress and the trauma of of a meltdown. Is that the kind of thing you're referring to?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that is one level of escalation. And I should refer to that because that happens in schools. There's a group, the um, International Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint, and they're actually working with the United Nations to try to get um, seclusion and restraint banned in schools, Um, and especially prone restraint and seclusion because they're so damaging. So I was referring to that, but specifically what I was referring to is I worked in patient mental health. You have these boys who, boys and girls, people, who have ways of being, ways of doing, ways of just existing in their bodies that from, you know, they're not just told that they're broken and wrong, but then they have them restricted. And How frustrating is that? I mean, we already know that autistic people struggle with communication, and my goodness, we're trying so hard. And even like the ways that we communicate are being, you're restricting them. It's not me. You are. So our thoughts are cut off and that's frustration and everything just escalates. Everything gets to the worst possible place. So why don't we just hurry it up? You're going to put your hands on me. You're going to do these things. So why don't I, okay, fine. Why don't I just aggress You know, and and you think that like eight-year-old, nine-year-old, 10-year-old, four-year-old kids know this.
0: Yeah, there's no other way out of this.
1: There's no other way out of this. I've seen somebody restrained because they didn't like, they had sensory stuff and the cafeteria food was disgusting and we had an apple tree outside. All he wanted to do was eat an apple. He got restrained for trying to get an
0: apple. Um, I love this focus on the doing, being, belonging, Mm -hmm. becoming, because so much of what you're talking about this happening is taking away. Mm -hmm. Let's take away that behavior. Let's take away that stemming. Let's take away that sensory response. And that is not aligned with who we are at our core. We're people who promote doing being, belonging, and becoming. And i love to hear you say that we need to think about autistic ways of doing and being mm-hmm. and how we can, first of all, stop taking those away right? and help others around them stop taking them away and mm-hmm. then level it up a little mm-hmm. bit um, mm-hmm. to say how wonderful. Yeah.
1: Oh, that so cool.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, talk to me about belonging. What's our role in looking at sense of belonging for our autistic clients
1: so when i went when i was thinking about belonging um the thing that kept coming up to me over and over again is authentic community um and i wanted to say autistic community but you know honestly right now and i think for a very long time the autistic community because it's literally so new we are really trying to figure out who we are and this is the first time it's ever happened And so I want to say the first thing that we can do um, is definitely for belonging is look out for authentic community. And what I want to say about that is that authentic community can come in a lot of spaces. Right now, um, the autistic community is really forming together. Um, It is, it's a beautiful chaos. And it's necessary chaos. We need to do this. We need to figure out who we are, how we want to be seen. What is it to even be autistic? How can we do that in a healthy way? All of those things. And so um, autistic community is really important and authentic community. And what I mean by that is specifically special interest. So where can you find, no matter what, a million billion autistic people? Well, if you go to a convention, some kind of like, and it doesn't mean it can be an art show. It can be concerts. It can be anything where there's a gathering of people that are all, they're all coming together because they so deeply love and appreciate something. That's where you will find the autistics. And so, for example, um, you know, we think about conventions. This year, I was not able to go. Break my heart, but I understand why. Um, but I was going to go to my first Comic-Con and with my daughter, and we were going to meet Thor and Loki. And so basically, this entire experience for us was going to be nothing but what we call heart happy flaps. Because um, it it's just, it's a special interest. And where else am I going to find people who are so happy flappy about Thor and Loki from the Avengers? But a Comic-Con, and if they are that interested in it, probably they're autistic. <laughs> they just don't know. Either they know it or they don't. But it's so authentic and pure. Uh, churches. Oh my goodness, you're going to find so many autistic people who gather for religion or spiritual things, um, because autistic people are, are deeply spiritual, You probably are going to find a lot of autistic or probably, I would say, autistic ADHD people in sports. I mean, to have the level of discipline that's required to develop yourself. So what I want to say about belonging community is there is so much focus on social groups and it can be a lot of fun. But what if you don't vibe with all the people there and then it feels awkward So a direct example of what you can do, something that I did for Belonging, I actually was tasked to create and run a a social group at my local Jewish community center. And it was for teenagers. So they gave me the super flex curriculum. And I was like, okay, am I going to read these books to a bunch of 13-year-old boys? In the semicircle, should they sit crisscross applesauce too? Oh, no. Yes. So, how can I take? And we had three boys who were all various ages, all various interests. What can I do? Because now we're creating a social group, and I have you know, it it just was really awkward until I spent a little time with those three individuals, and what I found out was they were all wicked competitive. They like to play. So we did not call it social skills group, we called it game school. And they came to game school and we came in and we gathered and we had different games set up. We had solitary games, we had cooperative group games, we had, we started every single thing. They would come in and we would all work collaboratively together to set up a um, obstacle course. And we then and then we would do all these things, but it was just the focus was on what they shared as a group for their interests. And that was playing, games. let's have fun. It's not the social skills. So when you can take that authentic motivation and bring it into whatever you do, you're going to find community. Invest
0: there. Invest in the things you love. I love that. That ties back so nicely to everything we've been talking about with strengths-based approaches too, mm-hmm. is making sure kids have access to groups of people who share their interests Mm -hmm. rather than social skills group, including young kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And also possibly autistic only spaces Mm -hmm. for many kids. Jen Shonger in episode 10 also talked about as a parent, just reading books written by autistic people Mm -hmm. helped her develop a sense of Positive identity as a parent of an autistic child, and and the idea of what her daughter's identity could be. Mm. Um, So, I imagine that sharing those sorts of books and blogs and online resources for parents of very young kids could help Mm. in that process as well. Mm. I love all of these ideas for how we can really connect autistic people, to people who share similar interests, people who will celebrate the things they love together with them Mm -hmm. and opportunities to become more fully themselves and Mm -hmm. more joyfully themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, What about folks who are working with parents of very young kids, two, three-year-olds, kids who might have just gotten their diagnosis? How can we celebrate and support their sense of belonging?
1: So the first thing that I want to address in your question is young children, the, the primary occupation of children, young children, old children, all the children, is play. Yet what is the number one thing we do is we restrict and control play. And so the thing that we can do most simply is just let an autistic person play. I'll give you an example. Um, I met a young boy who was telling me that when he was little, he liked to line up his cars, and um, he would put them all in a line, and then he would go back to the end of his line, and he would move the car like each car a little bit each time, and he could do this for hours, hours, um, and so his. Parents were very supportive of this, and they really allowed him to do this. And in our conversations, you know, I said, well, when you were lining up those cars, like he was telling me how he liked to play, I said, well, what was happening? And he told me the most beautiful thing, which is that this line of cars was actually a scene in a movie, and that he was literally creating a race scene, frame by frame, in the movie, So what he was doing was going back and, and advancing the position of the car just a little bit. All the cars in a line to mimic frame by frame what would be the movement in a racing movie. Wow. Right? And so I have heard, you know, one of my friends told me that they, in their room, they had a little hole in their wall. And that is very frustrating. I hear that. For many people... But let me tell you why they had a hole in their wall. The hole was like a portal to another world. And so that was their imagination. And they would take and they would put their hands on the hole. And that's where they would like anchor in order to enter into their imaginative imaginative play. And if something wasn't happening right in the world, in their imagination, or if there was a problem... And there had the way to fix, there was something wrong with the way they were entering the portal. And so they would scratch a little bit more off the hole because they were trying to change it so that, you know, they were, they were like literally changing the storyline. And, um, you know, I, I hear the same. I have a wonderful friend who tells me that um, she can listen and watch and look at the way leaves blow. And that is a symphony for her. And so- let them fight. You don't have to root everything in quote unquote function. Um, I had a therapist actually who was in my home. Um, and they were my the totally different child loved to take a crochet hook and just wave it all around. And so this therapist came and she said, I know, I know we can, we'll put a, um, a spatula in her hand. And she can pretend that she's flipping pancakes. That's functional. (laughs) And I said, oh my gosh, do you see the way, how beautiful this is? Because she's taking this crochet hook, which is shiny and beautiful, has rainbow colors in it because it's light reflecting off the metal. And she was standing in front of the window and she was literally playing with the refraction of light. I could see what she was doing. And how, like, again, it was just impressed upon me how, because we feel like we know better because what we went to school. I don't know. I don't know. Power hierarchies, systems, whatever it is, we feel like we know better. And so we have to control the line of cars. Well, what if we just let that kid continue? And he did continue on his way to become a director of his own movies. You know, my little, my little friend who is playing with a crochet hook. What if we cue in on that and say, my God, you're a brilliant scientist. You see the colors of light, don't you? Reflected in the middle. What if we just acknowledge that maybe little kids, big kids, adults, maybe they, autistic adults, autistic people know something that we don't about their own bodies. And that sounds silly to say out loud but just let them fight. Trust that play. Trust the development of it. Trust that they're engaging. Um, We talk about doing, being, belonging, and becoming. Just trust that process. That's so scary. That requires vulnerability on our parts as therapists and requires vulnerability on the parts of parents. But yeah, I, I internally cringe When, um, you know, a lot of the centers for autism, quote unquote, are places where autistic kids go to play, their play is restricted. Every little thing they do is restricted. Every little thing they do has a rule and you're missing out on the biggest area that you can support, which is actually our brilliant, amazing, intuitive imagination and the way that we are able to understand and make sense of the world. And that all develops through authentic play.
0: I love this. So doing, moving your body and stemming, Mm -hmm. being existing in your body, in your sensory experience, belonging, Mm -hmm. finding authentic community and becoming through play. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I want to shift a little bit and let you speak, if you don't mind, directly to parents. So, I want to have just a little snippet of this podcast that therapists can save and use when they're working with a parent who has a child who has been newly diagnosed as Autistic, and that parent is struggling with the diagnosis, and the therapist wants to convey this your child is wonderful, your child is awesome, let's help them. Know that and develop their own sense of positive self identity, but the therapist isn't sure what to say. What do you want to speak directly to the parent of a newly diagnosed child for us?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So, the first thing that I would say to any parent that came in front of me with a new diagnosis for their child um, of neurodivergence if it's being Autistic, if it's being, um, you know, being diagnosed with ADHD. First is welcome. I'm so happy that you're here at this point because I know how hard you worked to get here. And I know how important it was for you to advocate for your child. And the really neat thing is that you're just going to continue doing that. You're already good at doing that. Um, You're such a wonderful advocate. And I know that it can feel overwhelming. But first of all, I'm here. Um, I'm here with you. There are so many autistic people in this world Um, If you want to connect with them through social media, that's a wonderful way that you can get connected to autistic adults. There are Facebook groups, there's Twitter groups, there's actually something called Ask Me, I'm autistic. And so, you know, the autistic community, the first thing that I want to tell you is that we are so eager and excited to give you support, to talk about what our experiences were like as children. Because... Your child probably is exactly like me um, or was like me when I was growing up. And so I have a lot of, you know, insight to that process. The other thing that I want to say, what you can do right now, seek out those autistic adults, but really just sink into yourself and your intuition as a parent and look at your child and how beautiful they are and the way that they move. And when they're allowed to move and when they're allowed to be and when, you know, they're allowed to simply exist, that's true identity. Who is that child? Get to know that and use the therapies and use the supports to get to know your child. If you are engaging in a therapy that is removing who your child is, that deserves a question because... The way that we interact with our bodies is beautiful, natural. There's so many wonderful things about being autistic. We're creative. We are kind. My mom used the term fearless compassion for me. Um, and that's still who I am today. The autistic people that I see around me, for example, that I work with, in neuroclastic, so committed to social justice, I'm incredibly fair, and if you wanna see a group of activists that don't let something drop, find autistic activists, um, we're persistent, we develop everything. I mean, I, I feel like the creation of anything, you can, you can look back at the person who created it and say, you were autistic. Um, because it really does require such a level of dedication, a level, a level of perseveration, a level of commitment That's extremely intense. And that is our baseline. So if I could wrap all of those thoughts into one, uh, I would want to tell you that you have a magical, beautiful, perfect, autistic child. And the way that they move through this world and understand the world around them and the world inside of themselves is so intuitive and unique, and I'm so glad that they have you, mom, dad, parent, caregiver, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa, I'm so glad that they have you because I can see how much you love them. And I'm going to tell you that as an autistic person, because I have no boundaries, I love them too. And so I I am committing to loving your child just as much as you do. And this is how we're going to move forward together is loving that beautiful, perfect, magical child and creating a world that realizes how special they are too.
0: Thank you, Sarah. That was so lovely. So lovely. I like to imagine all of the the parents getting this message at the the time that they needed it. Um, So, As we wrap up, I want to just ask you one final question of everything we've talked about today. What's one thing you would like to see OTs start doing or do differently in their work?
1: Okay. First thing, straight out the gate, what do I want OTs to do? I want you to understand that being autistic is cultural I said this months ago, and I'm going to say it again. That is the number one issue that I've um, run into when I'm talking to OTs, if it's virtual and um, social media. There is a defensiveness that I can only, it's rooted in systems, it's rooted, I think a lot of it is being is ableist. I think it's just internalized ableism because we've gone through an academic system. So an academic system has already taught you that I'm special needs right? So what we need to do is just say, this is a culture. This is a way of being. This is a people that we don't really know a lot about. And we have an obligation for the tenets of our profession to learn about this culture because we talk a big game about being culturally competent. But when you don't consider autism as even a way of being, then you're already like, that's a no for culturally competent. Um, So that's my biggest challenge so far is that I really don't see a lot of OTs embracing um, autism or being autistic as culture, but I'm heartened, like meaning like I'm feeling hopeful because I am seeing more and more and more and more uh, occupational therapists and I'm seeing more and more students Be a little sassy um, and really challenging the academic uh, barriers found through the database. The database to me is a systemic barrier because it it gatekeeps information. Um, And so I love seeing students going outside of that and saying, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to reach out to this person who has a podcast. I'm going to reach out to this autistic blogger. I don't care if that's a level five uh, research article. I like it. So I, I, yes, culture, and I'm loving what I'm seeing. And a lot of people, um, just this rebellion. It's. <laughs> I love. I love
0: system disruptors. That's what my favorite thing in the thank world. Yeah. thank you, that, Sarah. So speaking of system disruption, tell us what you are working on now, and where we can find you online.
1: Sure. Um, so I continue to work with Neuroplastic on uh, Neuroplastic. We just received formally officially all the things we need to be a 5013C, all those things, all those letters and numbers, uh, meaning that we're a nonprofit. Um, and the purpose of Neuroplastic is to really amplify autistic voices, um, provide consultant services. Um, we're doing so much, but what Uh, we're really focused on right now. We're doing a lot of social justice initiatives. Uh, We're supporting two autistic uh, men and one autistic teenage girl who are wrongfully incarcerated and really trying to support them in all the ways that we can. So first, like Matthew Russian is, we're working with Matthew Russian. Um, We're working to get these people who um, have been diagnosed as autistic and we're not given advocates to the system. We're working to get them out of jail because they don't belong there. So that's a lot of what I'm doing right now is because as an occupational therapist, the reality is that I have a ridiculous amount of privilege because of a couple letters (laughs) after my name. Um, And so I use my letters. Um, I use my letters to amplify autistic voices, autistic perspective. I use my letters, meaning M O T O T R slash L, to gain a little bit of ground in spaces where um, marginalized voices don't typically are not typically heard. So we do that work, a lot of justice work. What I'm personally excited about is that coming up, I talk about sensory and I talk about how much, uh, how important it is as part of autistic identity development. And I am working um, actually with a psychotherapist and creating a week-long sensory workshop where people are going to have education and we're going to have activities and we're really going to dive into exteroception. So what we, we think of as the external senses, so sight, smell, etc., and interoception, the senses that occur inside of our body, which can be anything from my tummy is hungry, so it's growling, to emotion. Emotion is a sensory system. So I am creating this workshop to really help people who experience divergently understand those experiences and then how to take those. um, And they are actually going to create their own action plan. Okay, so I'm experiencing the world in this way. How do I want to engage in it? What do I need in order to be able, before, during, and after... What might I need in order to regulate things that are coming out of me, experiences that are arising inside of me? And I'm doing it in the most autistic way possible. It's called the symphony of sensory. Both Kate and I, uh, my partner, have a very big background in music. And so we're taking our love for music And we are applying that to our love for sensory. She is doing what's called transactional analysis, which is a lot like the PEO model. And looking at the ways that we can take those transactions and make them internal. So instead of looking for other people to be responsible for setting these things up and doing these things, to really, it's almost like we call it parenting ourselves. What do I need right now? and giving yourself permission to get what you need. That's not what our society wants to teach us. Um, and that's what I talk about being a system disruptor. Um, we're saying, no, this is a neurological necessity. Um, so that's what, it's, uh, what I'm doing. Um, the, I'm, we're not going to be doing public things until 2021. I want to get out of 2020. 2020. I just feel like I need to get out of 2020.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we all need to get out of 2020. Uh,
1: But yeah, I'm excited. The Symphony of Sensory.
0: And it's going to be the most autistic sensory education experience ever. Awesome, Sarah. Well, I'll link to Neuroclastic in the show notes, and I'll also link to your Facebook page, The yeah. Autistic Goatee, where people mm-hmm. can follow along with your progress towards this amazing project. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was so nice talking to you today.
1: Always a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you again for your commitment to amplifying autistic culture and voices. This is just one of my, it's, it's cherished collaboration, so thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Two Sides of the Spectrum podcast. Visit learnplaythrive.com slash podcast for show notes, a transcript of the episode, and more. And if you learned something today, please share the episode with a friend or post it on your social media pages. Join me next time where we will keep diving deep into autism.